to be in the house of the Lord tonight, and I'm so thankful for this opportunity, and uh, I will just go directly into the word of the Lord here. I would ask for you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5, and while you're turning there, say how much we appreciate all of the good hospitality. Those of you that don't know us, we have recently moved I would say back to the area, but it's been 26 years or something since we've lived in Houston, so I don't know if that qualifies as back or not, but it is good to make Greater Life our home, and I appreciate so much the hospitality that we have felt and look forward to getting to know everyone and uh, just really feel the warmth of the people of God and uh, so much appreciate what we have felt in our services and the strength that is here and just grateful tonight for for this opportunity and uh, I'm going to go to Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25 and I want to read about three verses but don't worry this is not going to be a marriage seminar I, I have better sense than to start out things like that Was it Alexander Pope that said, only fools rush in where angels fear to tread? So this will not be about marriage, but this is an interesting passage to me. And I I think there's something here tonight that hopefully will feed us and strengthen us. And so before you're seated tonight, I would like to read beginning with verse 25. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Amen. So I want to talk to you for a few minutes tonight about, I guess if I had to put a title on it, I would say the washing of water by the word. And uh, why don't we just pray one more time? There's such a sweet presence of the Lord here tonight. Just ask the Lord to have his way over the next few minutes. Lord, we're so grateful for the opportunity to be in your house, to be in your presence with your people. So grateful, Lord, for the ways in which you have worked in our lives. Pray tonight that your will would be accomplished in each of our hearts, that our hearts and minds would be open to you, that we would hear clearly the voice of the Lord. You would anoint us both to speak and to hear the word of the Lord tonight to receive it with gladness, and we will give you the honor and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Ephesians is one of my favorite books, and that's a phrase you'll probably hear from time to time about various books. Nevertheless, Ephesians is a favorite, and it really divides pretty neatly in half. The first part of Ephesians is Paul giving what you might say is a theoretical or an academic description of what God has done through Christ in the church. And it is a beautiful explanation of what God has done. And it is something Paul says, um, this is the mystery that was hid for the ages, but it's been revealed to us. And it is a magnificent thing to see what he says in the first half of the book. The second half is much more practical in the sense of if 
God has done this great thing in the church, then how should that impact us and how should we live? And uh, what should be the practical impact of this great thing that, that God has done? And he works his way through a number of different ideas. In chapter 5, he's talking in this section, of course, about the family. And okay, yeah. he's talking, talking about the family. And he is explaining the relationship between the husband and the wife. And in this particular verse, and I'll just say this, you know, there's a lot of discussion in our world about the concepts that are laid out here. And there seems to be a lot of focus on verse 22, wives submit yourselves unto your own husbands. But I would just say to the men, don't get too giddy and don't get too excited about that. There's three verses for the women and there's about nine verses for the men. So we get three times as much instruction in how we're supposed to act and behave. And the core of that instruction is here in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church. And I suppose it would be easy for my wife to submit if my love was in that depth and in that fashion. But what I really want to draw our attention to tonight is what Paul says here. He gives some, some reasons, and there is a progression here, and there are several reasons why he says that we, uh, that we ought to love our wives as Christ loved the church, and he explains why Christ loved the church in the manner that he did. He loved the church, he gave himself for the church, that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having any spot or wrinkle or any such thing, and that it should be holy and without blemish. So notice notice this, he gave himself for the church that he could sanctify it, that he could set it apart and... Um, that sanctify word is really just a, uh, a fancy, I guess, theological word for what happens to us. It, it really just means being set apart. And you will always or oftentimes hear sanctification talked about um, in relation to justification. Justification is the way that God counts us. When we were born again, we were justified. The Lord counted us as holy. The the type is in the Old Testament, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And we believe in God, according to Romans chapter 10, but we know how that is affected in our lives. Acts chapter 2, we are born again. We are counted righteous. We are justified. God does not remember our sins against us anymore. But there is also a practical impact that Once we are in that state of being justified and we are counted holy, then there's a process that takes place in our lives and we are sanctified, we are set apart, and this really is the story of the remainder of our lives on this earth as we walk with the Lord. It's the process of us becoming what God has already counted us to be. And this sanctification, this being set apart for the purpose of God, this is what Paul is saying. God gave himself for the church that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Cleansing, is there's no revelation there. It just means to make clean. He is cleaning us up. He's 
taking away all of the things that are not like him and he's cleaning us up. And he has a purpose for that, that he might present the church to himself. Ephesians is this beautiful um, expression of how God came and did things that he might present to himself the result and the accomplishment of what he had done. So he wants to present the church to himself as a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And, but it's this passage, this word, this phrase, the washing of water, that he might cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Now we understand the washing of water. There's a cleansing that takes place in the natural with water. And the type is all throughout scripture when, and you're probably thinking of right now at baptism, where our sins are washed away. And on the day of Pentecost, Peter said, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. At at baptism, those sins are taken away. And so there is this, this washing of water. But where does this phrase, by the word, comes in? That's the part that, that grabs my attention. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. So I started thinking about this. What, what could this really mean? Well, there's one possibility, and I think there's, I can think of three possibilities. I think they're all true, but I want to emphasize the last one. The first one is the most obvious one, that the word he's talking about is the word of God. And there is clearly a sanctifying effect of the word of God. This is all throughout scripture as well. The, probably the most famous example that kind of brings this to light Psalm 119.11, Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. There is a sanctifying, there is a cleansing effect of the word of God in our life. As the word becomes real to us, it has an impact on us. It cleanses us. And even verse 9, if you back up two verses, the psalmist said, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? How, How does a young man cleanse his heart? How does he cleanse his way? The answer that he gives is by taking heed thereto according to the word of God. And so this shows us the impact of the word of God in our lives, that it has this ongoing sanctifying effect. Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. If you just read verses 7 through 10 or 11 there, it's a beautiful description in Psalm 19 of what the word of God does in our hearts. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Every one of these descriptions of the Word of God is describing its impact on us. And so we see that the Word of God, as the writer of the book of Hebrews says, it's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's It's alive. That word quick there doesn't just mean that it's fast. It means that the word is actually alive. And it can pierce even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow. And and it, it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. God is able to tell the difference between when you just had a passing thought and what you intended to do. And we think we can understand motives. And we usually ascribe motives to people, but most of the time we're not very good at that. But the Word of God is able to cut so deeply into us that it can distinguish between a passing thought and an intent of the heart. And so 
we see the Word of God has this effect on us. Now, another possibility here could be referring to the preached Word. There is, there is a, a value in our lives to the preached Word. You probably know there's two different Greek words that get translated as Word in the New Testament. One is the logos. John said, in the beginning was the Word, the idea, the plan. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God had this plan from time, from before time, from eternity past. And, um, but that's not the word that's used here. The word that's used here is the rhema word or the spoken word. And there is a power in the spoken word. Paul said that God had chosen through the foolishness of preaching to save them that are lost. And if you read Romans chapter 10, of course... He says that it's important that people hear the word of the Lord. Verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. There's, there's power in the spoken word and especially in the declaration of the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. But there's one other, and I, I think both of those have value. They both contribute to our cleansing, our sanctification. But there's one more possibility and I guess I hadn't really thought about this until um, a few months ago. So let me, let me lay just a little bit of background here. The washing of water, my mind immediately goes to baptism. But if you really want to go to the roots of it, you need to go back to the Old Testament. Because there were a lot of things in the Old Testament that were given to us and they were provided to us to be a bit of an object lesson and they were teaching us Paul says in Galatians the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ the law is explaining to us our need for Christ and it's also showing us what Christ is going to look like so that when we see him we would recognize him and one of the primary things that came with the law in the Old Testament is that Old Testament tabernacle and if you remember the layout of the tabernacle, as you enter in to the gates, there is, first of all, there is an altar where sacrifice has to take place. And this is the thing that um, keeps the majority of the world out of the tabernacle. Because when the first requirement is sacrifice and the first requirement is blood, most people say, nah, I'm good. But if you wanted to enter in to that holy place, if you wanted to go into that tabernacle, the first thing you had to do was bring with you a sacrifice to go there. The priest would offer that sacrifice. But the very next thing past that altar was the brazen laver. It was a large bowl, and it was filled with water. And the priest, after offering the sacrifice on the altar, would take and they would wash in that laver so that they could go into the holy place. It was at that laver where the blood and the water were mingled together, and they were cleansed from what happened at the altar of sacrifice, and they were washed, and they were cleaned in there. Now, this is very important, because if you read in Exodus, the Lord said the priest is to wash in the laver that he die not. Because if he goes into that 
next room, there was an entrance, there was a door into this open area. But then beyond that was the holy place, which was covered over with a roof, and there was a veil all around it. And they went inside there, and then, of course, there was yet another veil into the most holy place. But if you were going to, as a priest, if you were going to go into that holy place, you had to offer sacrifice, and then you had to wash. And it was crucial that that washing happened. The Lord said that he die not. That's important. Now, a couple of months ago, I was listening to Brother Woodward from Canada, and he was teaching a Wednesday night series. He's done several of these series about that tabernacle, and he was in the midst of a series where he was treating it a little bit differently, but as he was teaching, I haven't even listened to the whole series, but as he was teaching, he just asked one question. First of all, he noted the laver is the one piece of furniture in the Old Testament tabernacle that did not have any measurements associated with it. God had been very clear about the size of the altar and the size of the table of showbread and the candlestick and the altar of incense and even very descriptive about the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant. But the laver, there were no dimensions given regarding the laver. It kind of speaks to us of the endlessness of God's supply of cleansing. That there's really no limit to the cleansing that is in that labor. That we can continually come and not have to worry about whether there's going to be enough cleansing left for us or not. The, the labor is big enough for whatever the need is. And he wondered aloud, Brother Woodward did, he said, I just wonder, they're wandering all over the wilderness... Where did all that water come from? And I thought, I wonder. And as I listened, my thought kind of coincided with his. Because you will remember that when the children of Israel, when they came out of Egypt, they were they had been delivered from the Red Sea, and they had been delivered from Pharaoh's army, and yet they were moaning and whining and complaining, and they were thirsty. And the Lord was a little put out with them. And he told Moses, he said, take the rod that you used to split the Red Sea, and I want you to smite this rock, and water's going to come out. And Moses did that. He smote the rock, and the water came out, and they were able to drink. And, of course, the Lord provided them with food and all of that. But as time went on, the people again got into a bad way a little bit later on down the line. And the Lord and, and Moses, they were, you know, they were giving Moses a hard time. Why did you bring us out? Were there not enough graves in Egypt? I mean, did you have to bring us out here to kill us and bury us? And, and Moses went to the Lord and essentially said, Lord, what am I going to do with these people? And the Lord said, take that rod. But the second time, the second time, the instructions were different. The Lord told Moses, speak to the rock, and the water will come forth. Now this time, Moses was frustrated. And he took the rod, and he didn't speak to the rock. 
he smote it again. And the Lord was gracious, and the water came out, and the people drank. And, but there was something that happened there. If you read those verses, the Lord was not pleased. And he said to Moses, because you did not believe me to sanctify me before this people, you're not going to be able to lead this congregation in to the promised land. Now, apparently that rock was a continual supply of water to them. And in fact, Paul is very clear. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he refers back to all of this, and he describes for us what happened. And apparently, that rock, as they wandered through the wilderness, that rock went with them wherever they went. And they had a... uh, Deuteronomy talks about a river that came down out of the mountain. It seemed like wherever they went, there was a river that went with them. That rock was following them. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, he wants to make this very clear to the people at Corinth. He said, I would not have you be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. So you remember as they came out of Egypt, there was the cloud by day that led them and then they walked through the Red Sea as it was opened. It's a beautiful picture of baptism. The walls of water on either side, the cloud above them, they were surrounded by water. They walked through that Red Sea. And Paul even says they were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they did all eat the same spiritual meat or same spiritual food. They all ate from heavenly supply. They all ate the manna and the dove or the quail, whatever it was the Lord was supplying, they were eating it. They all ate the same spiritual meat. And notice verse 4, they did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And Paul explicitly describes for us, he says, that rock that followed them was Christ. That rock was Christ. This ties the two together. We're not left to surmise or to try to figure it out. Paul explains it. That rock was a type of Christ. Now, I have wondered why in the world was the Lord so upset with Moses about smiting the rock that he wouldn't let Moses take the children of Israel into the promised land. I mean, think about this. Moses, is on. he's been chosen from day one. He was preserved in his infancy in the house of Pharaoh. He was called out of the wilderness. He was obedient. He went, he went through all the plagues. He took them out through the Red Sea. And then all of a sudden God says, nope, that's it, no more. The reason why is because Moses ruined the picture of Christ. Now the Lord was gracious and he gave the people water. But the picture was to be that Christ, the rock, would be smitten one time. This is what the New Testament says. He was offered as a sacrifice once for many. And after that initial smiting, from their own, all that was required was that they speak to the rock and the supply of water would come. The sustenance would come. The cleansing would come. There would be an infinite source at the speaking to the rock. And this was the picture that the Lord was trying to show the children of Israel 
of the coming Christ, that he would be smitten one time for their salvation, but after that, they would only have to call upon that rock. They would only have to speak to the rock, and the waters would come. There would be water to drink. There would be water to fill the laver. There would be all the water that they would need at the speaking to the rock. What a beautiful picture of New Testament salvation. When we come to the New Testament and we understand that that altar of sacrifice in that Old Testament tabernacle is a type of our repentance, our turning away from the world, our dying out to the world outside the things of God. And that after our repentance, we go to baptism and all of that is washed away in baptism. And I think there is an element of what Paul is saying here in Ephesians chapter 5, that when we are baptized, we are, Christ is sanctifying us. He is cleansing us. He is washing us with water. And it's the washing that comes with the word, by the word, through the word. You can find modern translations say, say it different ways. But the key is not the water that's in the tank. It doesn't matter if you're baptized in a nice baptistry or in a, uh, in a pool of water that the cows drink from. It, it, it doesn't matter if it's in a river or in a creek or in a lake or uh, in the ocean. It, it doesn't matter. It's not, the power is not in the water. It's in what Christ has done and the Word. It is the washing of water by the Word, the speaking to the sacrifice that Christ made at Calvary. Writer of the book of Hebrews says that in the opening lines of that book, he said, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken us unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom he also created the worlds. And in verse 3 he says, Who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Now you can look all through that Old Testament tabernacle. You're not going to find a chair anywhere in there. Because the work of the Old Testament priest was never done. There was never a time for the priest to be done. There was always another sacrifice. There was always another washing. There was always more incense to be offered. There was always more blood to be sprinkled. Because the people... And the priests could never have their sins completely taken away. And in fact, if you read on the Day of Atonement, the priest would take in the sacrifice. First of all, he would go for himself. Now, you know, we, it's kind of fashionable or common to say that we live in the age of grace, and that was the age of law, with the implication being there's no grace in the Old Testament. But that Old Testament priest on the Day of Atonement he carried a sacrifice for his own sins. He was not qualified to enter into the Holy of Holies, but he carried blood from a sacrifice for his own sins, and he sprinkled that on that mercy seat inside the Holy of Holies. And then he went back out, and he got another sacrifice, and he took it in for the people. But if you read Hebrews chapter 9, Paul, or the writer of the book of Hebrews, makes it clear that Christ was different, that he entered in one time, into the Holy of Holies, and he made sacrifice for everybody. He was smitten one time, there was one sacrifice, and that was sufficient. And when the opening verses of Hebrews, he says, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. 
there was no more need for him to be smitten again. There was no more need for sacrifice. There's no more need for blood to be shed. Enough was shed on Calvary for all of us. And the rock needs only to be spoken to now. We need only to call on the name of the Lord. That's why Paul would write in Romans and says, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, I think there is a misunderstanding of that in most circles. What did Paul mean when he said, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved? The book of Romans was written to an established church. He's not declaring the gospel to them. He's explaining to them what they've already experienced. And so when he says, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord, I think it's pretty clear he is saying, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord in baptism. It's the same word that is used to say when you're being baptized, you're calling on the name of the Lord, and that is making the difference. That's what's rolling your sins away. Peter said, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Now, you may think, well, that's, that's a pretty big leap. But go with me to Acts 22, where Paul is recounting his conversion experience. And he was taken into custody in Jerusalem, and he was called before the Jewish leadership because he was preaching a different way. He was preaching Christianity and was flying in the face of everything that they stood for. And so he recounts his conversion. In verse 16, he tells that Ananias, after, you you remember on the road to Damascus, Paul was struck by a great light, and he was blind, he could not see, and he was led to a house, he was there for a few days. Ananias, the Lord appeared to Ananias in a vision and says, go to Saul and talk to him, and Ananias said, no, surely not, because uh, he's been throwing people like me in jail. And the Lord said, he's a chosen vessel unto me for the Gentiles. So Ananias went. Paul says in Acts 22 that when he got there, he prophesied, he explained to him, he said that for him to receive his sight, and he said, that very hour I looked upon him, I saw him. And then he prophesied, and then he told Paul, verse 16, he said, what are you waiting for? Why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And that word is the same word that Paul uses in Romans 10 when he says, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It literally means to invoke the name of the Lord. And Ananias was telling Paul, you need to be baptized and wash away your sins invoking the name of Jesus Christ. What he was saying to him was, the rock is there and it's waiting for you. And all you have to do is speak to the rock and you will have your full supply and all of your sins will be washed away and you will be cleansed and there is no limit to what God can do. What a great what a great image of the infinite love and power of God. You know Paul talks about the impact and the power of being born again. I think sometimes um it's good for us to be. It's good for us to be uh, a little concerned and not cavalier about our salvation. 
I don't think we should take these things lightly. But sometimes the enemy will come along and make us think that there's like a revolving door on our heart and that whenever a bad thought comes, the Holy Ghost leaves. And, and uh, we've, we've kind of got this thing where we're just hoping that the Lord comes at the right time when the Holy Ghost is, is here and I'm not, in, I'm not in too bad of a state. But, but I think there is, there is a message in the New Testament that once you have been born into the body, there is, a, there is a strength of that relationship that is on the same order as the strength of sin. What Paul makes, the, Paul makes the connection, he says, just as those who were born of Adam were born into sin, so those that have been born of Christ are born into righteousness. And there is a supply for us, a ready supply for us, available to us for our own strength and our own cleansing and, and everything that we have need of, it's available to us. And it, it's not, the Lord has already been sacrificed for it. He's already been smitten for it. It only requires that we call out to the name of the Lord and that he will strengthen us. I guess that's the thought I want to leave with you tonight is that if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And there is a rock that is available to us that we can cry out to. And there is water that is available to us. And that we can be washed with the washing of the water by the word. It is that spoken word, that invoking of that rhema word in baptism. It cleanses us. But then it is our supply after baptism. It is our supply of righteousness. It's our supply of strength. It's... Everything that we have need is need of is wrapped up in that. And so I want to encourage you tonight. If you feel overwhelmed, the psalmist said, when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that's higher than I. And if there is difficulty in your life, we have a rock that we can cry out to. The Israelites bragged in the Old Testament, there is no rock like our rock. And certainly that should be our brag and our thought, our boast today. There is no rock like my rock. There's, there's no rock that provides for me. There's nothing in the world that would surpass or supersede the rock that is in my life. Why don't we stand together tonight? I don't want to keep you long. I don't, we haven't been here long enough to even know the custom of what time is normally dismissal time. So... If I'm dismissing too early, we all just act like you're real spiritual and we're praying in here and, and, uh, and pastor, will, pastor will think that great things happened. Amen? Until he watches the feed. Lord bless me. But let's do, let's go to the Lord in prayer tonight and just ask him to encourage and to strengthen our hearts and never let us forget that we have a source of supply that goes beyond anything that this world could have. Lord, we're so grateful for your many blessings, and we're so thankful, Lord, for all that you have given to us and that you have prepared for us. Lord, what a great privilege it is to serve you, to be part of your family, to have your resource at, at, our, uh, at our beck and call that we know that we can cry out as a, as a child would cry out to his father, say, Lord, help us and give us what it is that we need. Give us the strength that we need. Give us Give us the cleansing that we need. Heal us, O oh Lord, and we will be healed. We cry out to you in this time of confusion. You are a God of peace. 
In this time of uncertainty, you are a solid rock that we can trust in tonight. In this time of great upheaval politically, socially, culturally, in every way, you are the one that we can trust in. You are the stable one, Lord, and it is your word that we lean on tonight. We are grateful for your privilege, for your provision to us, for everything that you have done for us and the ways that you protect us. Help us, Lord, never forget that you are there at the mention of your name, that you are close to us and that you await our cry, that you are listening like a father in the night for the distress of the little ones. Help us, Lord, to know that you are available to us, not to trust in horses nor in chariots, but help us to remember the name of the Lord. We will be quick to give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Lord bless you tonight. Go in Jesus. We will see you this weekend. Looking forward to our time together Sunday morning in service and Sunday evening at the banquet. The Lord be with you, amen.